Good afternoon, everyone, or good evening if you happen to be in the UK or other parts of Europe. Um, we are, for the first time, welcoming Lexi Elliott to the Poison Pen. She's in France, as it all turns out. But um, but that, that makes sense, because this wonderful book, Bright and Deadly Things, which was our January British Crime Club book, for reasons I will explain. Actually, um, it all takes place in France um, near the Alps. Is it near Chamonix? Is that the... It is. And first of all, thank you so much for having me on. It's a real pleasure to be here. But yes, Bright and Deadly Things is set in the French Alps um, at a chalet, Chalet des Anglais, which is um, just down from Prairion, which is the Les Uches ski area, very close to Chamonix. It's a beautiful part of France. My husband and I took a train trip all around Switzerland, which you can do, and you actually can start near the Matterhorn and you can carry on. You can go down the Bernini Express in Italy. You can come back up through Luzerne and go back to Montreux, which is on Lake Geneva. And then you can go over to Lausanne and then you can sail across the Lake de France, which I, I love. So I've seen the backside, I think, of where your book is set. It's such a beautiful area. I, um, I'm very fortunate to, to come here fairly frequently. Um, but the, uh, the chalet that the book uh, is based around, Chalet des Anglais, I visited in the year 2000 when I was invited to go there as part of a reading party when I was at Oxford University. So um, I've, I've been to the real thing. I would say that the, the chalet in the novel is not precisely the real thing because my memory is not perfect. And also because, you know, there, there's such a thing as an artistic license and we like to tweak things to make it better serve the story. So I've tweaked a little bit about the chalet itself and its surroundings, but yeah, it's very much based on the real Chalet des Anglais. So what is the Chalet des Anglais? So let me back up and introduce Lexi. Uh, she grew up in Scotland. You could probably tell there's just a hint of a Scottish accent there in her voice at the foot of the Highlands. She graduated from Oxford University, where she obtained a doctorate in theoretical physics, which is, of course, a natural preparation for becoming a writer. <laughs> As an Oxonian, she's the perfect person to bring a surprising additional campus to light in a delicious dark academic set at Oxford College's retreat in France. There are three colleges, as I understand it, together um, on this chalet, the Chalet des Anglais. And in the summer, how's that work, Lexi? What happens in the summer? Is it like reading groups or study groups? What is it? Yeah, it's reading groups. So each, um, each college will take usually two parties out so any each party will go for a week so essentially you end up with six groups going through the summer um uh, the groups are mixed across all different levels of uh, the university so you would have some undergraduates you'd have some graduates right through to quite senior professors um invitation only so it's quite a unique experience i feel very fortunate that i was invited to go whilst i was doing my doctorate and the intention is that you do do some academic work, some study, some reading, but also that you do lots of walking. And um, I think I did a fair bit of drinking of the red wine of the region and generally having a good time. So it was a lovely experience and absolutely nobody died, but it stuck in my mind as being quite a unique experience. And when I began to think about setting a 
a thriller in the world of uh, Oxford Academia, I just wanted to do something that was maybe a little more fresh than a, a standard campus thriller. And this seemed to me to be a way to, you know, look at the Oxford academics, but not exactly within Oxford setting, within a slightly different setting, which allowed me to then turn it almost into, you know, a closed environment thriller where they can't easily get away, where the reader becomes aware that, you know, the the antagonist is going to have to be drawn from the cast of characters that they've met. And it, it's a, a great device for being able to really uh, deliver that sense of claustrophobia and heighten the tension. Well, it's definitely a closed circle structure. I mean, basically, it's an Agatha Christie country house murder in a somewhat primitive chalet in France. But let's go back to Oxford, because I myself had a summer experience at Oxford. I was an undergraduate at Stanford, and I'm so old that when I was an undergraduate at Stanford, women were not allowed to be Rhodes Scholars. We were not considered. So I sulked for umpteen years <laughs> after that, 1985 yes. or 86, I can't remember which year it was. Anyway, I had an opportunity while sort of changing directions from law to book selling, which is not either like theoretical physics to writing sort of a normal path to go to Oxford on a summer program. And to do that, I had to enroll at the University of California, Berkeley, in order to, to go to their companion college, Worcester College in Oxford. So as a Stanford undergraduate from the days of intense rivalry with the University of California, it was a very difficult thing to do. I still <laughs> actually have three hours of graduate credit at Berkeley. My friend Janet Napolitano, who, as you know, ran the Berkeley, ran the California um, university system for a long time, assured me that my three hours of credit <laughs> still existed. But anyway, it was a it was a wonderful experience. I had a tutor named Mr. Pitt, and he lived in the Abbott's 12th century quarters at the end of this kind of row at Worcester College. Worcester College is not right in the heart of Oxford. It's, it's sort of adjacent to where most of the colleges are. It has its own lake, uh, which is pretty nifty. But it gave me a chance without the pressures of grades and you know all the rest of it, because it wasn't that kind of a program. Um, to really explore Oxford and, and live there for, I think it was eight weeks. Part of the experience was not dining in the college any more often than I had to because the food was truly <laughs> awful. But um, <laughs> but fortunately, Brown's Restaurant managed to save my life as it probably is for generations of Oxford students. But, you know, it was, it was really a magical experience. And I thought about that um, when I was reading your book, Lexi, because, you know, going going to live in a really rustic chalet with fellow academics of various levels would also be a very special summer experience. Um, but, you know, you Brits have a term called a jolly, which is basically, you know, well, I don't know. What is a jolly exactly? I mean, this isn't exactly a jolly, but I thought of it because it's not an American term. What does it mean to you? 
Uh, usually when you say a jolly, you mean something that's going to be fun and free. <laughs> it's, oh, free. That's a very crucial oh. part of the, a jolly. Um, so if you have a work jolly, um, it's something that work is paying for. Um, uh, often jollies in the UK do involve alcohol. Um, so maybe you you do, a, I don't know, team building day with with drinks and dinner at the end. You know, that would be a work jolly. That's That's how we would understand it. But uh, yeah, I mean, that's wonderful that you had that experience. I'm really pleased to hear that, you know, you were able to to really get the most out of it. It was marvelous. There were, you know, in the summer, there were concerts everywhere. You could go to the Sheldonian. You could, you know, hang out at Maudlin and listen to the choir. You could spend time at Christchurch. It was more relaxed. And of course, the weather was lovely. Um, which it isn't always anymore, climate sun, but that was a long time ago. So it was kind of more, even, you know, punting down the ice, the, the river and all that. So for any of us who are fans of British mystery or British literature, we probably all read about various Oxford experiences. So, you know, I felt to some degree as though I were in the pages of some, of some novel, you know, it was, it was great. But I love this idea of, you know, of actually going to a different country, you know, not not just a remote part of England, but a relatively remote part of France where uh, you would have to bump up to the locals. I mean, you couldn't just, you know, you had to at least have some support from the local people, whether it's guides or provisioning or whatever. So how does that work? Yeah, absolutely. So the um, proprietors of the uh, Hotel du Préon are very um, much friends of the uh, of the Chalet des Anglais and are very helpful in terms of provisioning. And um, in return, there's a lot of trips up to the hotel to charge your your laptop, your your phone to, you know, maybe get um, some signal and actually be able to call someone and so forth. You know, world has moved on, right? In uh, in the year 2000 when I went I don't expect in fact I know I didn't bring a laptop um and I probably had a mobile phone I did have a mobile phone but I was one of the first of my peer group to have a mobile phone back then you know that was a long time ago but nowadays there's there's a lot more leaning on the Prairie on, uh, Hotel for those kind of things but it, you know it's interesting you talking about um your experience of Oxford in the summer which actually is is not something that undergraduates get in quite the same way because in the summer they won't be there but when i um stayed to do a um a doctorate a phd i then had that experience of oxford during the summer and i became very aware at that point that that oxford is a very different place depending on which level you are sitting in within the university you know it's a different experience for an undergraduate versus a graduate and i think at the time i was aware of that but I probably didn't extend the thinking to recognize that it's different if you're a postgrad, it's different if you're a junior fellow versus a senior fellow and so on, that it, the, the community and the life and your own ambitions are very different. And that's one of the things that I wanted to touch upon in this novel, looking at all the different characters who are at different levels in their, in their uh, academic and Oxford career. So what is the term dark academic as a crime genre shorthand? What does that mean to you? know that it means too much to me actually i wrote a novel that was um set in academia and looks at the dark side of human beings <laughs> um 
I'm not sure that I sat there and said, right, I'm going to write a dark academic novel. Um, I, I, I'm often thrown by the genres and the subgenres that there are within literature, because I think that when you first sit down as a debut author and you want to write a novel, you just write a novel. And then somebody, uh, usually your publisher says, oh, this fits into this category. And you go, oh, okay, I wrote a psychological thriller. And then, of course, they want more of the same, um, but different, obviously, because it can't be exactly the same. So, uh, yeah, you, you find yourself writing in that particular genre and you start to understand that a little better. But um, yeah, I, I I wrote a first novel, which was termed a psychological thriller and had a little bit of, you know, a touch of the uncanny about it, shall we say. Um, and that's something that has crept into all of my novels. And I honestly say crept w with deliberation because it's not something that's there in the outline usually. It just finds its way in. So clearly it's very important to me. It's something that... Um, you know, niggles away inside my psyche, I suppose. Um, but it's not uh, it's not intentional as such. But yeah, it always creeps in. So that's the kind of novel that I seem to be drawn to writing. And I'm very much drawn to writing about groups of people and how those connections work. And particularly what happens to them when you take someone out of the group and you disrupt the balance and how do they... How do they then manage when someone's tugged really hard on one string? How did the rest manage to balance? That's an excellent discussion of it. Um, I did say when I was writing up your book that it reminded me very much of Ruth Ware's The It Girl, which is a different um, Oxford story um, going back into the past. And in some senses, Sarah Pierce's book, The Sanatorium, which isn't a dark academic, but nonetheless takes um, a group of people to a relatively isolated, but if I remember that one, quite luxurious um, place in France. So I think that British mystery, it's interesting, you know, it's expanded into other countries by taking a group of, you know, essentially Brits and moving them somewhere else and then seeing how they behave. But I, I don't, I'm not really fond of labels. I think they've they've taken on much more weight and with online book selling, once Amazon got into the act and people started the way algorithms and computer stuff and tags and all work, you have to have these. But, you know, we don't we don't do that at the Poison Pen. We have generally just a, a giant file called fiction. And, you know, <laughs> out. but if you really go back and think about it, um, Dorothy Sayers wrote a dark academic mystery, obviously, Gaudi Night, um, which takes place at, a, at an Oxford college reunion back in the 30s. So you could certainly call that one Donna Tartt's book, um, name of which is going out of my head. Was it the Secret, Secret History? History? Yeah, is is another one. And there have been other authors who have over the years written um, books that fall into that genre. Ashley Winstead currently is also writing some, but basically it's all kind of a variation on Christie and the closed circle structure, because, you know, what you do is you have to put a finite group of people into a place where there's not, it's not porous, and then somebody's killed, and only those people who had access to the victim are suspects, and then, you know, on you go. So, I mean, it's a really classic form of crime fiction that is simply um, moved 
into other um, other locations. But I think a lot of people love the contrast, Lexi, between you know academics who, in theory, are pursuing more cerebral and more you know intellectual things, and yet base human emotions and you know violent acts. It, the contrast, I think, is one of the reasons that the dark academic really, really often grabs people. Uh, yeah, I think that's right. Um, I also think um, that uh, there, there's some kind of pleasure in thinking about um, some people who are uh, exceptionally bright and recognizing that that doesn't make them infallible, that we we are all um, at the whim to a certain extent of our own very human emotions and desires and ambitions. And, you know, there is a lot of ambition in academia. It's it just because people are uh, working hard, sometimes on some very lofty projects, that doesn't mean that they're devoid of ambition and ego and all the sort of things that can create some uh, rather nice conflict if you're a, if you're a writer, <laughs> um, perhaps less, less nice conflict if you actually have to live in it as a profession at times. <laughs> Well, I do think many people have said that the stakes seem remarkably low um, in academic mysteries some of the time, because if you're not in that profession and don't understand the career ladder and the politics and so forth, then it can seem as though. Um, years ago, when I taught crime fiction at Arizona State University, one of the books that I had the students read was Tony Hillerman's Edgar winning book, The Thief of Time, which you may not have come across, but basically... Um, it's archaeology. I mean, it involves pot, pot hunters in uh, New Mexico on the Navajo reservation because his books always embrace the Navajo culture. And um, the, this is a really old book, so I'm sorry if this is a spoiler, but too bad. But it turns <laughs> out that the, that the motive for the murder had to do with academic advancement. In other words, you know, somebody claiming a discovery or whatever it was that would advance him up the career ladder in academia. And I want to tell you, I did that for three years. 100% of the students could not believe that that was actually the reason for the murder. They really rejected it. And, you know, it was, they just didn't even understand why anybody would kill over, you know, credit for some kind of a um, an academic discovery. I found it fascinating. That is interesting. I could believe that. Yeah, I, I would buy into that. I, that's an interesting one. I wonder, I may have to read it now to understand where the uh, disconnect lies. It was too low stakes for the kids. You know, I mean, yeah. they, there wasn't a lot of money involved. There, you know, it wasn't sex. It wasn't, you know, kind of the obvious crime fiction motives. Of, it was just a bit elusive for them. Now I've spoiled it for you because you'll sort of know how it <laughs> Um, but you know, I also thought it was interesting that the Edgar Committee had decided it was the best novel that year. So the difference between actual students in a university and you know published writers, because the Edgar's is a, is an award given yeah. by by authors, um, in evaluating the motive and the behavior of people, I thought was really great. I loved it. Anyway, tell us about your lead character, because she is, in fact, a widow um, who's come on this um, expedition trying to, what, break through her fog of grief and reboot herself? Yes, that's exactly right. So uh, she's uh, Dr. Emily Rivers, and she sadly very recently lost her husband and is struggling with that. You know, she isn't 
the person that she was before she suffered that loss and she's struggling to find a way to regain some kind of joie de vivre some some way in which to take control of her life and and work out how she wants to spend the rest of the time that she has allotted on this planet and she's very bright she's a um fellow in theoretical physics she's very logical she's aware of the the impact that grief is having on her psyche and on her reactions to things she's very aware of um how she might be viewed by others and that perhaps makes her slower to put her hand up than she should be when things begin to happen around her because she's very conscious that you know as someone who has really struggled with this this grief in her life that uh, people may dismiss what she's saying as as paranoia um so she's she's in a little bit of a bind there where she makes things rather more difficult for herself than uh, than they might need to be but um you know that that certainly serves the story quite well and is very fitting with her character arc so she's kind of maybe that classic unreliable narrator or unreliable witness which is a very useful thing in crime fiction it's actually true in real life you know in trial testimony and so forth the the you know, the the witness, the eyewitness is often very unreliable because, you know, in stress, people's senses are not necessarily functioning right. Memory can be distorted. Um, so the rest of them, do they view her with some, I don't want to say suspicion, but, you know, how do the, do the other people in the retreat view view her? Well, there's a mixture of people who knew her already and those who maybe knew of her, but uh, but didn't have a, any close acquaintance with her. And she's perhaps typically actually most afraid of uh, the reactions of those who know her really well, that they may um, think that she's uh, she's going back into to the hole that she's trying to pull herself out of because of course they saw her in that whereas you know others who uh, who are less well acquainted won't have been quite so close to her experience of grief um she's she's certainly someone that um the more junior members of the of the group um on the on the whole not not exclusively but uh, mainly look up to um as they should, because she's a you know, very, very bright, capable woman. Um, but it, it is a mixed group uh, of different levels of, as I say, of, um, of academics. And there are some very um, strange things happening. So uh, a, a lot of people, as in life, are a little more focused on themselves and their own concerns and maybe not not looking around them quite so much. Well, you bring in um, that really useful thing for crime fiction, which is terrible weather. Um, <laughs> so, so not only are they in this rustic place with few mod cons, as we say, but the weather comes down and um, and isolates them even more. And generally, that that's sort of like turning up the fire under a pot, isn't it? Um, you know, that kind of, in this case, snow. So it's the opposite, but that kind of forced isolation can't really make things start to bubble up to the surface. Well, they they don't have to deal with snow with it being the summer, but they do have right. to deal with you know um, a very let let's just say an event um, <laughs> um, that uh, that really 
focuses the mind. And I think um, uh, Emily in particular has to decide who to trust in a situation where her life might very well depend on it. There's there's two or three instances where she has to make that decision. And, uh, you know, um, and in that situation, I wonder what any one of us would do. It's... Uh, it's an interesting one. Um, if you, if you, well, some of your readers may have read it already and uh, and may be wondering to themselves what they might have chosen in some of those situations. But of course, we don't want any spoilers, so I won't go too far. But um, you know, weather, as you say, is a, a, a wonderful device to be able to play with as a as a writer. It's it's lovely to be able to you know write a few paragraphs and just uh, change the environment quite so completely. Um, that there aren't uh, there aren't often many devices that do it quite so well as that. So uh, yeah, I, I I did rely on that at one point. You're right. <laughs> well, I mean, why not? If you you know, if your object is to have this closed circle, um, the less permeable it is, the more more things work out. So does the chalet? We don't want to give anything away, but does the history of the chalet at all? Does it play into what happens? Have, have, you know, other dark events occurred at the chalet in the past? So the chalet does have an interesting history. Um, and uh, the chalet has uh, also got one particularly interesting uh, piece within it, which is a, a clock that seems to be um, not exactly keeping perfect time, shall we say. Um, and that clock, initially it was more, I think, a a way to produce a manifestation of Emily's focus on time. You know, she's very aware of the pulse and the beat of time that she's perhaps through going into such a hole of grief, she's lost time, that she's um, running out of time, the time that she has allotted on, on the, this earth. And so the clock became, as I say, a physical manifestation of that, but then it, it began to build up its part and the clock becomes very important and is in fact you know part of the chalet's rather rich and um uh dark in places history that we learn about more as the novel progresses i really love the role of landscape in crime fiction to me it's often just as major a character as the human beings um i'm going to be talking at six o'clock our time when you will be asleep um to writer of another british mystery and it takes place in a um, isolated country estate in Yorkshire, where the actual geology plays a role, because one of the questions is, was a person, did he just fall because the cliff crumbled, or was he shoved off it? And, you know, again, very isolated, that kind of thing. You know, isolated, like, see, in a way that's almost impossible to achieve today. You know, we're all so connected in ways that it's, and, you know, with GPS and, you know, cellular phones and all the rest of it, I still remember when you, when the expedition was trapped up on Everest. Do you remember that? And there was a guide from New Zealand, and he I think he was New Zealand or Australia, and he couldn't get down, and he stayed with somebody that was dying, and he himself was dying up on the top of Everest. And the last thing he did was he called home to say goodbye to his wife. I mean, oh wow, I I don't remember that, but goodness. Good. Yeah, but I mean, just imagine that, you know, he's going to die because nobody can reach them in time to save them from the cold and the lack of oxygen and all. And yet he can call, you know, half yeah. over the way and talk to his family. 
I'm really it obvious. makes it hard for us writers, I have to say, you know, all these technological devices, because, yeah. I mean, years and years ago, you could have a letter come through the door and slide under the mat, and, and that could be the turning point of your novel. But, you know, now somebody would have texted and, and called and WhatsApped, and, and there would never be that miscommunication again. So, um, yeah, you have to think really hard about how it is you put your character's where you want them to be and how you make it difficult for them. You do, and you have to disable technology. I mean, the more we read, the more I wonder why every criminal in the world doesn't figure out that the way forward is to leave the cell phone at home. I mean, <laughs> it's just unbelievable. <laughs> so taking along with them so everybody can track it. And then, you know, oftentimes we had a group of writers here in Scottsdale around an event and they all got caught. They all broke into the mall and the Mercedes dealer did all this. Dance. They all got caught because they all posted themselves on social media, you know, doing <laughs> all this. Uh, so either they or their friends, you know, eventually everybody worked it out. And I thought, if I were going to go <laughs> and break into the local Mercedes dealer, I would not take my phone. I'm with you. I wouldn't take my phone. I wouldn't take my Fitbit tracker. I wouldn't take anything technological. <laughs> It's really true. And you know, today there was an article in the Wall Street Journal about how easy it will be for hackers to take control of electric vehicles. So, you know, you read about carjackings and other things, but, you know, imagine yourself driving along in your electric vehicle and some hacker suddenly takes it over, you know. Um, so what kind of crime novel will that make? Yeah, I mean, that does sound like a really good starting point. Um, <laughs> that could be quite a good thriller. Um, how would you, how would you get out of that situation? But yes, I think, you know, we'll, look, the, the human brain is endlessly inventive. So I dare say we will find out, way, we'll come up with ways to incorporate these devices into our novels going forward. But uh, uh, otherwise, the only alternative is to start writing things that are kind of pre-mobile phone time and set everything back in the uh, 80s and the 90s or, or even earlier. So how was your journal journey from theoretical physics to published author? What 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 was the transition involved there for you? Well, I'd always wanted to be a writer. I mean, right from as soon as I understood that books have authors and don't just, you know, magically appear on a shelf, I, I wanted to do that. And when I was five, six, seven, I, I would write little stories and take them into my teacher and so forth. But uh I don't have the kind of background where, you know, I was going to be able to to live off any kind of trust fund and not worry about paying the bills. That was certainly not my background. So uh, I was keen to get a job uh, ultimately that would would pay the bills and allow me to eat and so forth. Um, so I, I felt that following physics at university was more likely to lead to that kind of, of position. So I, I did did physics at university, but I never really gave up on, on being a writer. I was always scribbling short stories in my spare time. Um, but then of course, you know, I got a job and I was working in, um, in finance in uh, investment banking in the city of London. And the, that spare time was very, was very small. Didn't have a lot of it. Uh, and I was, I would periodically be wondering if maybe I should check in my job and, and actually try and write, but I never really quite got there. And then uh, as it turned out, my, my job jacked me in um, because the global financial crisis hit. And like so many people in the industry, I lost my job, um, which left me with 
a bit more time on my hands, albeit that I had two very small children at the time. Um, but I thought I would use this unexpected, you know, freedom from employment to try and write a novel. And that's what I did. It took a long time. I did, as I mentioned, have very small children at the time. So it took an awful long time. But ultimately, my debut novel, um, The French Girl, was was the product of that period of time. And and then I went back into um, into finance and in uh, asset management instead and was working three days a week and using my um, two days to write and my weekends to write and so forth. Um, and it's only really quite recently, um, the last year and a half, that I've been full-time on writing. And do you find that you have more time to write or does it simply give you more time to do other things? <laughs> I do have more time to write. To begin with, I thought it was uh, more time to do other things as well. Um, but no, I definitely write faster now. Um, and I uh, can do it under less pressure. It was very stressful whenever I had a deadline on a book and I was um, you know, working at the same time in the city. It was very stressful to try and get through that. So it's a little calmer now. I've got a lot more time to do things like this, which is something that I really enjoy because actually, you know, a writing career is a very isolated career. So um, it's lovely to be able to talk to other people about books, you know, about writing, things that I'm very passionate about. But, uh, you know, I have to be quite thoughtful in my day to make sure that I do get social interaction because, you know, as I say, it's quite a isolating career. And, it used to be that three days a week I was going into an office and having lots of social interaction there. But, you know, now I uh, I have to go looking for it in other ways. Well, here we are on Zoom. I know. Exactly. When am I going to retire? And I think, what would I do? What would I do yeah. if I weren't doing this? And the answer is I'd be bored, you know, because I'm yeah. so I really and I love the idea that, you know, you and I can have a conversation thousands of miles apart. Um, and so really time zones, I often say this, that time zones are the hardest thing about Zoom. You have to figure <laughs> out, you know, where I did one for, a, I did a, a book launch for an Australian author on Tuesday. And just as I was about to wish him a happy Valentine's Day, I recognized that it was the next morning in Australia. Oh. <laughs> had already passed for him. And he then mentioned, this is Michael Robotham, who's a double gold dagger winner for the UK. And, and then Michael pointed out that um, his publication day, um, he started talking about it. And then we both realized that, well, it was his publication day in the US for me. He'd already moved past it again because it was yeah. February 15th there and so it's been great you know we've been to Stockholm we've been to Reykjavik we've been to New Zealand we've been all over Australia all over the UK Ireland France um, and one thing we also learn is that internet signal is not universal <laughs> so, so sometimes you know sometimes it's a little rocky while while we try to work things out but I just think it's so great that we have this global community possibility now and my, my proudest achievement was bringing together two Irish authors, one of whom lives in Dublin and the other in Perth, Australia, at the same event. And you had to, you know, it was 10 in the evening in Dublin. It was 2 in the afternoon the same day here. And it was 6 a.m. the next morning in Perth. But oh, wow. Together. I... So it's just conceptually, you have to, you know, you have to struggle with it. I mean, the actual technology and the three of us 
sitting and talking, you know, it all works just fine. It's just getting everybody to that, you know, on screen at the at the right time is the is the crux of the matter. Yeah, it's one of the things that's come out from the pandemic, isn't it? That we we now know this technology really works and where it's working. Well, why would you stop? You know, um, if you couldn't have done that event with those people without um, doing it digitally. So you you keep using the digital platform where it makes sense. Absolutely. Yeah, we do. We actually stream all of our events now. We stream them all from the store if they're live, where in point of fact, they make... Um, probably more interesting television because you know everybody is is alive and talking and interacting and so forth in the store but um we have found that the virtual audience is very strong and whether it's on zoom or whether it's streaming the live event um it's really created a a great community the other thing is interesting let's see you know i've been doing it that long but this is my 33rd year as a as a bookseller, um, that you know, crime fiction was really at at the beginning. It was mostly a British literary form and American literary form. But you know, you had the big Russian novels and all, but you didn't have a lot of national crime fiction in many countries. And now everybody's doing mystery. You know, you have Japanese mystery, you have Romanian. You know, it doesn't matter anymore. It's become a much more a much more global form of fiction. And that means that there are lots more works available in translation in each country now. I mean, how many countries have, have your books been sold into? Do you know? I don't know, but you might. I don't. Um, you know, uh, quite a number. Uh, I, I, I don't think Japan, but I think almost, almost every other major market I can think of. Um, yeah. Um, it's always quite interesting when you see it with a completely different title, because obviously it's, it's in a different language and and usually a very different jacket. And you're like, oh goodness, and and that yet yet it still has my name looking exactly the same at the bottom of it. It really is interesting. Some years ago, I visited Ian Paris in Oxford. His wife Ruth took over my tutor, Mr. Pitt's job at Worcester position, I should say, at Worcester College. And Ian and I had lunch and it was right at the height of an instance of the finger post, you know, which was a huge bestseller. And we went back to his home for tea and he was just surrounded by foreign editions of his books. And he said, you know, I don't, I don't know what to do with them. And I said, well, I do. So he actually signed them all and we shipped them over and and sold them, and and we do sell foreign editions of many authors' books because we are a global bookstore, and we ship overseas all the time. So, you oh, know, fantastic! Yeah, but I mean, you're right because then I can see an author like Steve Barry or Diana Gambledon or somebody where the foreign editions are there, and you know, and you're right; they all look different. Cover art is different. You know, the typography is different. Um, the whole package is different and that's before you ever open it up and try to read it um so you know i think it's i think it's really amazing that that all this happens that you know we can share books now written in one language all around the world and books travel all around the world it's great audiobooks you know for some people digital books for other people this kind of event actually really sustains your audio and digital market because you know interesting those, they're not book buyers 
And under in normal in 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 a bookstore, you know, they wouldn't really have contact with you, but they can watch these programs. And you know, audiobooks have really come on strong for a whole lot of reasons. And um, yeah, I'm a, I'm a fan of audiobooks actually. I'm I'm really not someone who's wedded to reading in any particular format I will I will read on the Kindle I'll read on my phone I'll read you know hard copy and and I'll listen I think they all have their place and the research seems to say that uh, it sticks with you in the same way whether you listen to it or whether you you know read it on the page or the Kindle so uh you know it's quite interesting how your brain works with the words in the same way regardless well I wish I could say that were true for me but in point of fact if I don't read it I'm toast I am not oh. who I absolutely cannot cannot listen to a story in the same way that I can read a story but then you know part of that's my age and I think much younger readers who are much more accustomed to it all can adapt faster so Jacob speaking of younger people you're only 24 so I'm going to pop up on the screen laughing um, and see if we have any comments or questions from the audience before we quit. This is when the magic happens. He has to dissolve the screen and come back. So funny. There he is. Hi, Jacob. Hi, Lexi. Well, we do have a few questions. Um, one of them is, how did your um, background in physics lead to investment banking? Uh well, um, at the time that I was looking for a job, there were quite uh, basically people who had a doctorate in in physics or engineering or math, so anything that was particularly um, analytic and, and technical, they were in quite high demand in the city. Um, and uh, you could go and be what was called a quant, um, which isn't the role I went into, but I became essentially the most technical person on a commercial desk and was able to carve out a career by being someone who was known to be very technical, but who also, you know, had had some some soft skills as well. <laughs> um, and that seemed to work very well for me. Um, and actually, because I was very technical and often kind of parachuted into deals and would do some some of the more analytic stuff and then parachute out again. I was able to work three days a week um, for places like Goldman, which is usually quite um, difficult to do if you're doing it um, on a on a commercial client facing desk. Now, did you start writing when you were working at the bank? Um, did that allow? Uh, I mean uh, I was I was writing short stories and I did um, get some uh, success uh, with with a few competitions at that point. Uh, but no, there was not a lot of time. I was trying very hard, but there was not a lot of time uh, to do it. And I think really, had I not lost my job in the global financial crisis, it would have been very, very difficult to actually produce a novel. So that almost kind of spurred on your your writing career. Yeah, my mum always said, oh, it will come to you at the right time. Don't worry, don't try and stress about it and and push too hard on the door. It's going to come at the right time. And I I guess in in a certain way she was right. Um, and that, but at, at the same time, you have to you have to recognize the opportunity. So I, I had childcare cover that I didn't let go for a while because I was hoping to, you know, get another job. Um, and I used that time to to sit down and write. Um, but I, yeah, I had to be quite disciplined about it and go, right, that's what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna really make sure I don't I don't lose this opportunity that I have. Okay, great. Um 
there was a question about the grandfather clock. I don't, without any spoilers, is there anything supernatural happening with that? Or do you want to talk about a little bit more about any sort of like supernatural undertones to your to your novel? Um, the grandfather clock, uh, it's difficult to say too much here. Um, <laughs> definitely don't want to do spoilers. Um, sure. I will say that there was no clock in the real Chalet des Anglais when I was there. I am told actually, um, by Professor Stephen Golding, who, um, you know, uh, is a trustee of the Chalet, the real Chalet, um, that he has since put a clock in the chalet because people complained that they really didn't know the time um so uh so there is something but it's not a grandfather clock it's a, it's something rather more bog standard and probably battery powered um but yeah like i uh mentioned earlier there there is usually something that's a little uncanny that creeps into my novels so we'll we'll just we'll, we'll let that lie okay and um do you would with um, a physics background, does that somehow mesh into your writing? Um, just uh, when you construct a um, a crime novel, I mean, are you much more analytical when you think about it, or you put all these fine details um, into your novel? Um, if that makes any sense, I mean, is it is it more of a, a mystery that you have to put together, a, a very lofty mystery that you write, or? Um, I I think of it as. I think of the kind of mystery genre as being a great uh, scaffolding, I guess. Um, so it gives you a really firm structure um, that allows you to, you know, move the story along, get the pacing right, so on, keep people interested. But if all you wrote was something that was very nuts and bolts, I don't think anybody would be very interested in that because actually character-driven tales are what what take our attention and 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 keep us coming back because we care about the characters and we we want to see what happens to them and we feel that they are authentic. So really I, I feel that I write character-driven thrillers and um the the scaffolding of the mystery construct allows me to then hang other things on it and to explore some of the themes and develop the relationships with the characters that I that I'm interested in exploring. But in terms of um, how my physics background plays into it, I think I think that there there is something about you know holding the whole universe that you've created in your mind and making sure that you dot your eyes and cross your t's and you you don't leave things hanging. That's very similar in a sense to you know looking at a a problem in in physics or in maths that's very abstract, but you have to kind of hold it in your head and and work out how to attack it and analyze it and how it how all the different parts of it interconnect. I think that there those two things are not dissimilar. Um, and I also think that the the discipline that you develop in doing a PhD is really very helpful for writing because. When you're doing your PhD, nobody is going to do it for you. Nobody else in the world has the answers. You've just got to sit down and keep, you know, beavering away at it yourself. And um, with writing, it's the same thing. You've got to be very disciplined. You've got to sit there and you've got to keep going. And you have to have faith and and not let yourself be thrown off by a bad day. You you know that it's it's a, definitely a marathon, not a sprint. What was your PhD dissertation topic? Uh, the title was Glassy Behavior in Simple Topological Tiling Models. 
There right. you go. <laughs> Definitely gripping. Were you were you working or did you specialize more in quantum mechanics or in relativity? Or it was condensed matter theories, kind of solid state physics was what I was working in. Okay. Very cool. Love it. That's it for questions. I love the paths that authors have taken. And as Jacob, you and I have actually discussed, it's amazing how often you live your life and then suddenly some accident or some event that you didn't anticipate and probably don't welcome suddenly comes mm. along and kicks you off in a new direction. It's true for Lexi when she lost her job. It's true for me. Um, and, you know, you're right that that those of us who survive and thrive take advantage of that rather than be defeated by it. You know. Yeah, I have a friend who says that you know when when one door closes, another one opens, but it's hell while you're in the hallway. <laughs> and I think that's probably that right. Yeah, resilience is a is a quality not everybody not everybody has a full measure of, but resilience is really the key to making your way through life. So in any case, I really enjoyed your book very much. Uh, this is the fourth book that Lexi has written. So let me close by asking you what you're working on now. So I am working on um, an idea for another psychological thriller, um, which uh, I can't really say too much about because I'm, I'm still in the very early stages. And I've been writing something in another genre just as a sort of palate cleanser shall we say wonderful well actually there's the the thrust of the question was to reassure people that you are writing rather than specifically what you're writing um so i'm glad to hear that you're at work and i hope that gives us another chance to speak that would be lovely it's been a real pleasure thank you so much for having me well it was our pleasure thank you so much for joining us um, bye, everybody. Enjoy the rest of your day. And if you're free at six o'clock our time, Charles Todd and I will be discussing a British historical mystery, which has lots of interesting stuff in it. So try to join us for that, too. Bye. Hello. We hope you're enjoying our programs and podcasts with authors. We'd like to expand them and your help would be appreciated. Please make a donation at poisonedpenfoundation.org. 100% of the proceeds will go to help connect authors with readers in this difficult time. Thank you.